How's everybody doing? Still good. All right. All right. So I'm going to be reading to you guys um, out of the book of First Chronicles. Now, there's not something you see every week, now, is it? We're going to be reading a little bit out of First Chronicles. Before we uh, dive into God's Word, let's have a word of prayer. Most gracious God, we give you praise this morning for the opportunity yet again to open up your word, to have you speak to our hearts. Lord, we just pray that you will open our hearts and just allow your spirit to move in a mighty way. Have your way with us and just speak to us. Your servants are listening. God, allow me the opportunity just to get out of your way, speak through me. May my words be yours. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. All right. So this is a, there's a lot to our text this morning, so rather than make you read this with me, I'm just going to read over you. I would like to invite you just to kind of sit and receive. Uh, because it is kind of lengthy, I don't want to lose you, so uh, uh, let's try to keep up the best that we can without uh, nodding off. Here we go. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. And after David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Anybody ever had a cake of raisins? Neither. And he gave that to each Israelite man and woman. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord. The Levites would go on to become the, the tribe of worship leaders. He appointed some Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to extol or to exalt, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, Asaph was the chief. Now, you might recognize that name. If you've uh, read through the Psalms and perhaps you've seen a psalm or two attributed to this guy, he, he wrote a few of the psalms that are in the book of Psalms. And he was the chief. And next to him in rank, here we go, are Zechariah, then Jeaziel, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Matty, and Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, not to be confused with Superman's daddy. They were to play the lyres and the harps, and Asaph was to sound the cymbals. And Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priest, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. This is a worship experience. That day, David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. All right, I'm going to try to read this because my version is different than yours. Sing to him, sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Israel, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promises he made for a thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham and the oath he swore to Isaac. I'm going to jump ahead. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations, what? The Lord reigns. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing and let them sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. 
Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, God, our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, and praise praise the Lord. Awesome. Now what we have here is is a glimpse into a, a biblical model for thanksgiving which seems kind of apropos because, well, this week is Thanksgiving, right? You guys got big plans this week? I mean, nobody invited me. Who's Oh, thanks, Kendall. Oh, that's sweet. Who's, Who's traveling this week? Who's traveling the farthest? Where are you going, Rachel? Dollywood for Thanksgiving. That's awesome. I believe you. Anybody going, anybody going farther than Pigeon Forge? Kansas. She's going to Kansas. Who's going farther than Kansas? Rock Top Jayhawk. Really? You had to go there. I love Thanksgiving. I really do. This is not just a great model for Thanksgiving. However, this is also a detailed worship structure that is depicted in the text that we just read, and it contains almost all the key components to our basic pattern of worship. Now, the last few weeks, we have been taking a look at our DNA, where we come from, our heritage, our history, our theology, and our polity. This week, I thought it would be fitting for us to take a look at our worship experience, worship experience as influenced by church history, and um, to be more specific, as influenced by Methodism, and how that might equate to how we do things here at Revolution. Does that sound all right to you guys? Yeah. Great, because it's a little late for feedback. Now, this is right out of the Methodist book of worship. Our worship, in both its diversity and its unity, is an encounter with the living God through the risen Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's on page 13 of the book of worship. Now, I think that's worth repeating. Our worship in both its diversity and its unity. Pause. Think about that. Is an encounter with the living God... through the risen Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. I love this Trinitarian definition of worship. Did you guys notice the Trinitarian uh, theme in our opening set this morning? I think that says a lot about the importance of what we sing. Our lyrics matter. Now, I'm not going to bore you this morning by telling you that worship is not just a once a week event. I'm not going to tell you that it's, it's a moment-by-moment experience. It can be experienced every day in your journey. It's, it's, it's not something that's reserved strictly for this time when we gather together. We're not going to go down that road. But let me state that the corporate worship that we experience, that means all of us together, our corporate worship that we experience begins the moment that you cross over that threshold. In fact, truthfully, it begins the moment you roll out of bed and you begin to prepare your heart to enter into a time of worship. Now, that's important because I believe that we we become so desensitized to things that, that we do so frequently that we lose the sacredness of the experience and we truly miss the power of what happens in here. 
I think it's good for us this morning to give ourselves that gentle nudge to remind us that what happens here is not just checking a box. We're not just marking something off the list, right? It's, it's not just about coming and, and, and meeting and, and, and seeing our friends. It's not just about getting some good coffee. It's not just about listening to a good sermon or, or, or singing some songs that you like to sing. It's not about being entertained. It, it, it's about something that is so much bigger than all of that and so much bigger than all of us. It's a very sacred and powerful moment, and I want us to be reminded of the truth of that before we even park the car. To, rem to remind yourselves as you're entering into this space, what's God fixing to do? What's fixing to happen? Now, the moment we enter into this space, we join in what is known as a basic pattern of worship. And this pattern of worship has been in existence for thousands of years. Even early Jewish worship experiences followed a similar pattern like we read in the First Chronicles earlier. This particular basic pattern of worship comes out of our book of worship. And I'm going to go through this real quick. The, the first element is the entrance. Okay, that's the moment you walk through the door, the first hand you shake, the first person you hug, when the music starts, when you engage in the worship it's singing, but through singing and through prayer and through the, uh, the reading of creeds, those things that are involved in that, that opening uh, uh, element of worship is known as the entrance. And then comes the proclamation and the response. Okay, the scriptures are opened up uh, through, the, through the reading of the lessons. They're shared through preaching. They're shared through testimony, through music, uh, maybe through uh, other arts and media. And then the response to God's word might include acts of commitment and faith with offerings or concerns, uh, prayers, gifts, and service to the world for one another. The third element is thanksgiving and communion. In services that have communion, which by the way for us is pretty much every week, and I love that about us, the actions of Jesus in the upper room are reenacted in taking the bread and the cup and giving thanks over the bread and, and, and the cup uh, we share together in the Lord's table, the communion, the Eucharist. Thanks is given for the mighty acts uh, that God does through the risen Christ, Jesus Christ. And then the last element is sending forth. People are sent out into the world, into ministry with the Lord's blessing. Perhaps you've heard this called the benediction, or as we call it here, the BTR. Be the revolution. How are you being the revolution? All right. That's right out of the book of worship. Now, these are Christian adaptations of the ancient Jewish worship ex experiences like the one we read earlier. Or also like the synagogue worship in, in the time of Jesus. Now, now the word synagogue literally means gathering. It's, it's not a building. It's a gathering. It's an assembly. And at first, these, at first, these gatherings could be held anywhere. They were usually held in people's houses or in people's yards. They were a way for uh, the Jewish culture to worship God without having to travel all the way to Jerusalem where they, where they could go into the temple. So they started doing these synagogues. And here they would read from the scriptures or the scrolls. And they would offer up prayers and praises to God, most likely drawing from the Psalms. And also know that the table in Jewish culture has always been the center of Jewish family worship. During the time of Jesus' ministry, Jesus would often share in this tradition with his followers. 
Uh, I like to joke and say, see, Jesus was a foodie. But you see it happening a lot. He sits down at the table and he, and he breaks bread with his followers often. Now, as a family of devout Jews, Jesus and his disciples considered their meals together sacred occasions to be preceded by a blessing, especially the last one, which we Christians have shared in ever since. We call it the Lord's table. Now, there are examples of worship that can be found uh, from the early church. The, the book of Acts is an obvious place to start, but it's a little vague. Right? And other than Paul's instructions to the churches found in his epistles, there really aren't any examples as to the structure uh, of their time of worship. However, we can look to some other writings from our early church fathers to gain some insight. So I'm going to take a look at a letter that was sent by this person named Justin Martyr. Perhaps you've heard of him. Justin Martyr was one of the early apologists, apologetics. That means basically that he defended our Christian faith during a time of heavy Christian persecution. He was a Roman citizen. Okay? And, and in the second century Rome, Christians were heavily persecuted. This was a time of martyrs. So in, in an effort to defend the Christian faith, Justin Martyr wrote this letter and he sent it to the emperor of Rome. That's pretty courageous, isn't it? Because he wanted them to see, this is, this is all we're doing. This is, all, this is what we're doing. When we gather and we worship, this is what it looks like. So he wrote it in a letter, and he sent it to the emperor. I'm going to read it for you, because I think it's really cool. On the day called Sunday, there is a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a given city or rural district. The memoirs of the apostles... Now, let's stop there for a second. Uh, many scholars uh, believe that this might be the Gospels. We don't really know for sure because they weren't really called the Gospels yet. In fact, the New Testament wasn't even in existence yet. Okay? The Gospels did exist, but they probably would have been called something different. In this case, we're just going to say that they might have been the memoirs of the apostles. So they also uh, read the writings of the prophets uh, as long as time permitted. And then when the reader ceases, the president in a discourse admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things. And next we all rise together and send up prayers. When we cease from our prayer, bread is presented and wine and water. And then a president in the same manner sends up prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability and the people sing out their assent saying, Amen. A distribution and participation of the elements for which thanks have been given is made for each person and to those who are not present, they are sent by the deacons. Those who have means and are willing, each according to his own choice, gives what he wills. And what is collected is deposited with the president. He provides for the orphans and the widows and those who are in need on account of sickness or some other cause, those who are in bondage, prisoners, strangers who are sojourning, travelers. And in a word, he becomes a protector of all who are in need. We all make our assembly in common on Sunday. Since it is the first day on which God changed the darkness and matter and made the world, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, arose from the dead on the same day. For they crucified him on the day before Saturn's day, which is Saturday, and on the day after, which is the day of the sun, or Sunday, he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught these things which we have offered for your consideration. 
then he sent that letter to, to the emperor of Rome. Now, I don't, I don't know the timeline uh, of Justin Martyr's life, but I do know that he ended up getting beheaded. So, hence his name, Martyr, right? But here we see Justin Martyr describe uh, th this, this guy who presides over this worship experience. They called him the what? The president, right, for obvious reasons. Now, he's using this word because he knew that this would be a word that his audience would understand. Now, usually they would call it like the presbyter. But the, the main worship leader in their worship experience was called the president. I kind of like that tradition. No? Okay. Just, just a thought. No, Mr. President. I'm joking. No, don't do that. Don't call me that. Justin's account also reveals four components that are still present in our modern-day services, the preaching of the word, prayer, communion, uh, the offering. Did you catch all that? What's missing, though? Who said that? All right, give a cookie to the pastor. Somebody throw a smarty at her, would you? The music is missing. Anybody want to take a guess why there was no music? There were no instruments, but why? Think about this. The church is underground at this point, okay? They're trying to stay quiet. They don't want to bring any attention to themselves. They don't want, they don't want to have, to, to, to have the, the Roman soldiers come in and wipe them all out. Okay? Legally, they're not allowed to be meeting in, in, in Christian worship. So they're not going to be banging on cymbals and blowing trumpets like we read earlier. Okay? They're, they're trying to maintain a, a certain stealthiness to what they're doing. So that's why... The music is, is not mentioned in the early church worship time. It's not because it was evil or because it wasn't allowed or, or any of these other reasons that I've heard people try to describe, but it wasn't in the New Testament worship experience because they were, they were worshiping underground. Now, eventually, uh, Constantine would make Christianity not only legal, but he would make it the official religion of Rome. Now, this wouldn't be for another couple hundred years. And when they did this, then they started building up these, these, these huge structures, these cathedrals. They were honoring God with, with this, these architectural marvels. Has anybody ever been to Vatican City? Or anybody ever been, been, to, been to Rome to look at the churches over there? That's on my bucket list. I would really love to go check it out sometime. But when they started doing that, then they started opening up the worship experience, and singing became something more common. They brought singing back in. Eventually, around the Middle Ages, Okay. The pipe organ was invented, and that was brought into the sanctuary. Eventually, the piano was brought into the sanctuary. Eventually, uh, they started making musical notations and staff, you know, the things that we see in the hymnal that you guys don't see anymore. But the, the musical notation, okay, this was all the evolution of the worship experience. Okay, then the piano uh, was eventually uh, accepted as the guitar was eventually accepted, the bass guitar um, the drums. Woohoo! And then today, in some progressive churches here on Sunday morning, you might even hear the cowbell. Or not. All right, now let's, let's take what Hollywood calls a time jump. <laughs> we're going to move forward a few hundred years. Okay, that catches us up to the Wesley brothers. Now, both Wesleys, both Charles and John, they had this conversion experience after hanging out with a group known as the Moravians. 
And it was during one of these experiences that John Wesley described having his heart strangely warmed. If you ever had a spiritual moment in a worship experience and you felt uh, what John Wesley felt. And this happened at a place called Aldersgate Street in London. I'm pretty sure that maybe we've already covered this, but just a refresher. Aldersgate Street in London. That name Aldersgate should be familiar to, to all of us lifelong Methodists. So Methodism led to this holiness movement, but Wesley really wasn't trying to, to, to plant a new church. Okay? In fact, he was clear that he wanted to preserve the things about the Church of England that worked. And one of those things was the Book of Common Prayer. This was their guide, their worship guide, their book of worship okay, during the time of John Wesley. And here we see the, the different excerpts from the, book, the, from the table of contents. I don't have time to go through all of this, but just kind of give you just an example of what the Church of England was using when they were worshiping. And then when Methodism came to America in the 1760s, Somewhere around the time of the Revolutionary War, when the United States, or, the, or America at that time, was trying to gain its independence from England, okay, the American Methodist Church, they, were, they wanted their independence from the Church of England. So John Wesley, in his wisdom, recognized that there needed to be that, that separation. They had to sever ties. So he, he hooked them up with their own book of worship, and it was called The Sunday Service of the Methodist. This was just a revised version of the Book of Common Prayer. Only in this book, the worship services were shorter because Americans were complaining because the worship services were so long. <laughs> Leave it to the Americans. Even back then, they couldn't wait to get to the football or the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> so he shortened, he shortened the worship service, and he added the, the Lord's Supper every Sunday because that wasn't in the Book of Common Prayer, and that was a big deal for John Wesley and for all of Methodist, Methodism. That's what separated them. Now, in, in, in the time of, you know, of, of this North American Methodist uh, evolution, eventually we got to see the, the Lord's Supper get celebrated less frequently, once a month, even once a quarter. And the reason for this is they didn't have the resources to do it every week. They didn't have the clergy available to be everywhere every Sunday. They were traveling by horseback, and there wasn't enough of them during this time. So that's why the tradition of the Lord's Supper got changed to once a month or once a quarter. It wasn't because of any other reason. Then they just didn't have the resources. Like I said earlier, we do it here every week, and that was one of my favorite things about being uh, belonging here at, at Revolution Church is, is the frequency that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, in addition to Methodism, the Wesleys are also known best for their hymns. This is also a way that they used to illustrate this Methodist theology. They knew that singing formed people perhaps even better than anything else, even, maybe even better than a sermon. I don't know. I'm not saying that is true, Rachel. It could be. Just say. They used the power of poetry set to music for just this purpose. Charles composed over six. He's accredited. He, many believe that he, he may, have wrote, may have written close to 9,000, but he's credited for writing over 6,000 hymns uh, on various doctrinal themes, and he was always infused with the deep piety that lay at the core of his theology. Some of his more well-known hymns include uh, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, which we just sang earlier. Christ the Lord is Risen Today, an Easter favorite. You guys remember that one, right? Alleluia. 
we kind of have our own arrangement of it that we do on Easter Sunday, but uh, nevertheless, a, a classic. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. One of my favorite Christmas hymns. Charles Wesley wrote that one. Love divine, all loves excelling. Uh, another popular hymn that he wrote was the song, and, and Can It Be? And besides the obvious use of Wesley's hymns, still today we see his influence on modern worship with, with more recent contemporary uh, composers uh, pulling from Wesley's hymns to, to write new songs like we see And Can It Be. You can quickly compare And Can It Be to uh, the song that was, that was big back in the early 2000s in the Christian church, The Amazing Love. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, should die for me? This is just a random example. We, we don't have time to grab them all. But I just wanted to illustrate Wesley's influence over even modern music. Now, John Wesley was particularly concerned with the quality of singing and, and that, that appropriate tunes be used. So in 761, he, he, he developed this, this list of instructions for how to sing. Some of you are laughing. You want me to read it, don't you? This was, this was included in one of the first hymnals called Select Hymns. Now, this is from John Wesley. Learn these tunes before you learn any others. Afterwards, learn as many as you please. Sing them exactly as they are printed here, without altering or mending them at all. And if you have learned to sing them otherwise, unlearn it as soon as you can. <laughs> Sing all. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up, and you will find it a blessing. Sing lustily. Not to be confused with lustfully. Sing lustily and with a good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. If you can't say ouch, you, got, or you can't say amen, you've got to say ouch, right? Lift up your voice with strength. And be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of it being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. How's your toes? Sing modestly. I don't know. How do you sing lustily and modestly at the same time? A little confused. Anyway, sing modestly. Do not bawl. <laughs> I don't think I've ever shared a worship time with a bawler, but... Apparently this was a problem in Johnny's day. Do not bawl so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation that you may not destroy the harmony, but strive to unite your voices together so as to make one clear melodious sound. I like this one. Sing in time. That's important. <laughs> Whatever time is sung, be sure to keep with it. Do not run before nor stay behind it, but attend close to the leading voices and move therewith exactly as you can and take care not to sing too slow. This drawling way naturally steals on all who are lazy. <laughs> and it is high time to drive it out from us and sing all our times just as quick as we did at first. Somebody must have been dragging. That's all I'm saying. Somebody must, they needed a drummer. That was the problem. Above all, sing spiritually. And I like this one. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing Him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing. And see what your heart, or see that your heart is not carried away with the sound 
but offered to God continually. So shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve here and reward you when he cometh in the clouds of heaven. John Wesley. So right now, today, both of these books are still in use. Okay? These have been gifted to us throughout all of the years of our tradition. And, and as I described you, this book of worship has a long-standing a long tradition that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, obviously, they've been revised over time. Um, you don't see these in the back of your seats, but it doesn't mean we don't pull from it. Okay, this is the hymnal, and this is the book of worship. Now, I don't have time to go through all the contents of this book. I mean, this has songs in it, obviously, but I don't have time to go through all the contents of the book of worship, uh, but just to name a few things, I, I thought it would be worth mentioning. You know, here it gives us directions on, uh, you, got, you got the... Uh, the basic pattern of worship is described in here, how to, uh, do, the how to do baptism. The baptismal covenant is, is in the book of worship. You've got weddings, marriages, uh, funerals. Um, it has the Christian calendar is defined in here, and the different colors that we use comes out of here. Uh, all of Advent, special Sundays, special occasions. I mean, the list goes on and on. I referred to this once when my daughter built her new house. We, we did a blessing on a new home, and it was kind of a, a powerful thing. Just things like that are all through here. And like I said, I don't have time to go through it, but you can check it out on the Internet. It's, it's public. You can go out to uh, this website, or you can just Google United Methodist Book of Worship. That's probably the best, easiest way to get there. And it'll, it'll give you access to everything that's in this book. Now, a few months ago, um, some of you know that I, that, I, that I have a band that I play with outside of Revolution. We were invited to play at a benefit concert for the flood victims in eastern Kentucky. And I, I was pretty excited about that. Uh, I wanted to write a song for the occasion, and, and although I wasn't really able to finish it in time for the show, I did end up writing it. And I wanted a song to offer hope for those who are struggling and to those who have lost everything. My heart just broke for these families that had their lives taken away from them in an instant. Some literally, in the middle of the night. But then I shared in the pride of being a Kentuckian when I, when I heard the stories of folks going out of the way to help each other in their time of need. It was a very beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing to watch Eastern Kentucky come together in this tragic time. And, and the song that I wanted to write needed to have a message uh, so that the rest of the world can see what was going on here. And I, it also needed to have a message of being able to see the end in mind, having the end in mind. A song of hope. A song of restoration. The key theme being that the sun's going to shine again on eastern Kentucky. I wanted to write a song like that, but I couldn't get it done in time for the concert because, unfortunately, that's the way sometimes songwriting happens. It doesn't always happen when you want it to. In fact, I wasn't really able to finish the song until uh, I was on a short sabbatical. My wife and I were at uh, Kittinger College, Cottage, College, Kittinger Cottage at Camp Lucon, and um, I'm sitting there, and I'm working on this song, and, I, and I'm trying to get past this wall, and this part that I'm stuck in is I couldn't find a word that rhymed or a phrase that worked with this line above it. And the line above it says something like this. If you think that our spirit's been destroyed. And I found nothing. 
And as I sat down this day at the cottage at Lucon, this phrase came to my mind, resurrection noise. If you think our spirit's been destroyed, then come and hear the resurrection noise. And I'm like, where does that come from? So I Googled it, and it was nowhere. It wasn't a phrase anybody used before. I have no idea where it came from. And like most songwriters, I really began to question the using it all. I mean, are folks going to understand it? Is this just lazy songwriting or what? But then I began to envision what it might look like to rebuild a part of the world as significant as the one affected by the eastern Kentucky floods. You can almost hear the hammering, the drilling, the sawing, the power tools, the voices of restoration. I could hear the, the, the clanging of cutlery and spoons as meals were getting served to the hungry. And I could hear the sounds of volunteers coming from all over to come and help throw up homes, whether it be UMCOR or Habitat for Humanity, but they were throwing up homes or building back churches that were once standing. Now they would be standing again only stronger than ever. You'd hear the sounds of downtown Jackson or Hazard or Whitesburg getting cleaned up and demoed, trucks hauling off trash and bringing in new supplies. Resurrection noise, right? And then I remembered as I'm putting this teaching together, there was a story of a Logden Seminary graduate, uh, that's in Hardin-Simmons, Logden Seminary grad who was surprisingly asked to offer a meditation at a local church on Easter Sunday in Abilene, Texas. Now I say surprisingly because, and I forget his name, so forgive me, but this is a true story. Somewhere along the way, this MDiv, this person that graduated, this, this Masters of Divinity graduate, lost his faith. And he became an atheist. And they invited him to come and do the meditation for communion on Easter Sunday at a Disciples of Christ church. And I guess he, he accepted because, uh, you know, he didn't, he, he didn't want to be disrespectful. And he starts into this meditation with this statement. I find it odd that I was asked to say a few words before this time of communion. I find it odd because I don't even believe in the resurrection. Now, this is Easter Sunday right before the Lord's Supper. And you can just hear the gasps. And you can hear a pin drop. And he said, I'm just being honest, but the truth is, most of you here don't believe in it either. Because if you did, you, you don't really live like you do. I thought, wow. Can't say amen, you got to say ouch. How true is this, though? How many of us really live like we believe in the resurrection? I mean, the resurrection proved that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Did not. Living hope and new birth uh, came through the resurrection. We should live life like it did, expecting victory. The resurrection is tied to forgiveness of sin. We should be living, casting aside all of our shame and our guilt. The resurrection was for our justification. We should live like it, walking in freedom. The resurrection ushered in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit 
We should live like we believe in the Holy Spirit. We should live like we believe in the resurrection and a power greater than ourselves and anything that we have outside. The resurrection guarantees that there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we should live with the assurance of our salvation. Jesus' resurrection means that death is defeated and we will rise with Christ. Do we live that way? What does it really mean to live the resurrection? Well, this is a sermon in itself. But I want to offer two things, because I think this, these things would be true. First of all, if we believed in these things, we would be telling everybody about the good news. You couldn't keep us silent if we truly believed in it. I mean, when we have other things that need to be shared, we don't have any problem sharing those. Just look at social media. I'll just give you an example because it's Thanksgiving. I'm going to tell you the story. I'm in Walmart. It's the day before Thanksgiving. And I'm just shopping for some last-minute things, which don't do that, by the way. Not the day before Thanksgiving. And all of a sudden, everybody's phone starts going off. I'm like, what is going on? Is it like an Amber Alert or what? And I got a text. So I'm in a group text with uh, my wife and my neighbors. You know, so we're got, there's four of us in this text message. And this group text come in and says, hey, have you heard? Matthew McConaughey is going around giving away turkeys. Have y'all heard this story? This has been a few years ago. Somehow he bought into a local distillery there in Lawrenceburg. I'm not going to mention any name, but it has poultry in it. And the word got out that him and, and a crew of workers there were going house to house. So every citizen in the, in the city of Lawrenceburg got a free frozen turkey, and some were fortunate enough to have it delivered by Matthew McConaughey. This really happened. And everybody was like, Matthew McConaughey! Matthew McConaughey! And all, you could just hear women and, and there's this chatter about, and everybody was, was, was like storming to the checkout because they had to get home. We don't want to miss Matthew McConaughey bringing us frozen turkeys. It's a thing. In the same way that we would tell somebody about a frozen turkey delivered by a handsome actor, we should be willing to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I believe that if we really live the resurrection, if we really believed in what we say we believed in, then we would worship like we believed it. We would worship in victory. We would worship more passionately and more fervently than any of those other things that make us scream and yell and dance and sing. We wouldn't miss an opportunity to gather and engage with our sisters and our brothers in the presence of the divine, the holy triune God, the ancient of days, the creator of all things, the giver of life, and the author of our faith. Our omniscient God sits on the throne ready to observe and to listen. All of this history that we've been talking about, every worshiper that has ever gone before us, every song that has ever been sung, every word that has ever been proclaimed has led us to this moment, has led you to this moment. What's your offering going to be? My prayer is that our praises will be all that God hears when we gather. From our lives to his ears. May the heavens roar with the sound of our resurrection noise. Let's pray.
Most gracious God, there's, there's never been a song written that could capture your worth. And we could never sing anything or say anything with enough intent, or with enough skill, with enough mastery to offer up the praise that you are worthy of. But God, we just pray that you would just instill in us a spirit to give you at least what we can. Because you gave us everything. You gave us all. Forgive us when we fail you. Forgive us when we fail to recognize the blessings that you offer us in our lives. Forgive us for not lifting up our thanksgiving. Forgive us for not bringing our true worship into your holy place. Change our hearts. We ask all this in your name.